Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Greetings, comrades, and welcome back to our Red Dawn part, the fifth. And this time we'll finally get to the October Revolution. We'll get to the very basis and the very beginnings of the creations of the Soviet power. Now, I have, an, I have a small twist here once again. See, last time I mentioned there were two revolutions. It was... Quite correct, when we spoke about it last time, but right now I have to amend this a bit. Actually, there was just the one revolution, the one that we spoke about last time. Because during my research, I've come up with the fact that what happens now is not a revolution, actually. The October Revolution never happened. It was a coup. A coup d'etat. And, turns out, turns out it was called a coup d'etat all the way up until the end of the World War II, when Stalin took it up to himself to rewrite his role in all of the affairs, write out Trotsky from the events, and then he started calling this revolution to make it more appealing to the propaganda materials. This was a fact that I had missed myself, but, well, it's here now. At uh, any rate, let's start with what's been going on here. Essentially, last time we were left with all this chaos in the country and, and the utter nonsensical, utter inability of the provisional government to, to lead the country, and now they have had these elections of the pre-government and everything, and, and some people are trying to make sure everything gets in order. Well, now, this is where things start start to get really, really, really terrible and bad. See, I'll start with the, with the October. You see, in October, uh, the trade union membership amounted to nearly 2 million workers throughout Russia. And they were obviously under Trotskyist and Leninist control there. In the 1917, the total population of the country was 145 million people. And yeah, I'm quoting this, by the way, from my Marxist historical site. So I'll go through a short timeline of what, what happened there, and, and then I'll go through uh, some accounts from the people. And Lenin's own quotes about the whole situation 
But I'll start with this timeline because it's important as I found it on the Marxist site. So when we speak about this, we speak, uh, we speak from this timeline from a position that's deeply sympathetic to what's going on. We're speaking about a position that emphasizes the good that this whole coup, this whole communist coup uh, did to the country. Uh, so this time, timeline comes from a perspective of the people who celebrate what's, what's going on here. So, with that in mind, uh, I'll, I'll just uh, give you the, the events of what's going on here. So, as there aren't really any hard occupational data for 1917, but, but really we have this huge growth of the working class, which is documented later in the December 1926, uh, the total number of workers in the USSR basically only amounts to about 8 million workers. That is up, up around 5% of the total population of the country. It's a very agrarian country, you see. So uh, the, the citizens working in the factories make up a small part of, uh, of the whole population. And now, and this is, this is of 1926. In 1917, the number of workers was actually less than this. So this is kind of weird because if you think about it, it's always presented as this great workers' revolution. But it's a revolution of uh, about, you know, at best, and this is uh, in uh, December 1926, uh, like nine years after, after all of this happens. Nine years after all of this happens, it's 8 million workers, about 8 million workers, it's 7.93. And now it's less than that. And these are the people who are under communist control, and about like 2 million of those people under communist control. It's a very tiny minority inside the whole country who are doing all these things, you see. And by the, by the end of 1917, the fraternization of Russian and German workers increases dramatically. Because uh, the people are just going to trade unions and the soldiers support all this and everything. And uh, throughout the front, you know, remember last time we spoke about the fact that... Uh, at one point, when the provisional government took power, they had to decide what, what was going on with the war. Well, they still haven't decided that one, but Lenin had declared that, you know what, uh, you elect your own officers now. They get elected officers. And there are mass mutinies to support these elected officers here throughout the whole front. Now, what happens, like, slowly there, like on October 5th, with uh, Trotsky, Stalin, and other Bolshevik leaders present, this party votes again on their earlier decision to join this pre-parliament. And only one vote, Kaminya, only one vote supports actually joining the whole government. This, again, pre-provisional government. The guys who basically decide how the whole situation is going to go on from now on, after this time of chaos, what's going to happen to the whole country? And the communists decide, well, no, we're not just, we're just not going to go. We have our own plan, specifically Trotsky's plan by this point. The very next day, on October the 6th, the Petrograd, Petrograd soldiers Soviet declares that it no longer reports to this provisional government and they just don't care about it. By this point, Trotsky is already the chairman of the Petrograd Soviet, so he's leading the political activities there. On October the 7th, that's two days after 
this vote that the communists will not join the government, which only communion supported, the pre-parliament begins its first session. And every party gets to speak, it's a multi-party government, and the people are just there basically to decide where the country is going to go. So when the Bolshevik time slot arrives, Trotsky delivers a scathing speech and drops a bombshell. Bombshell for the government at the time. The Bolsheviks will not participate in all of this. They don't care about provisional government, they don't care about democracy whatsoever. So for the next 11 days, the pre-parliament will try to create some unity among its remaining members, but it will be to no avail. But, on their first and most urgent question, what to do about the war, they still have no majority position there. So again, this is where chaos really sets in, as confusion and despair began, begin to set in, as, by the way, this Marxist site de de describes this thusly, <clears throat> as delegates confront their profound ineptitude. Meanwhile, the army headquarters plan to launch a new offensive slightly before the 20th date, which, by the way, many generals who support the government think is <clears throat> quote-unquote completely crazy. On October the 10th, while the government is still trying to get its stuff in order, somehow manage the whole chaotic situation in the countryside, and now they're trying to work with what's going on with the country, on October the 10th, the Bolshevik Central Committee debates and approves the decision to overthrow the provisional government and to follow the tactics suggested by Lenin, who has illegally arrived in Petrograd just three days earlier. Kamenev and Zhinovyov, who are also at the time in, in the, the whole organization, they strongly disagree with the majority decision to overthrow the government. And also, at this date, the Politburo, the very famous Politburo, which will later run the, through the whole Soviet Union, at this point, October the 10th, 1917, it's created then. On October the 12th, the Petrograd Soviet, led by Trotsky by this point, creates its own military revolutionary committee, which will then lead the insurrection, because all of this what's going on here, this whole insurrection, this coup, it's actually Trotsky's plan, but he will also get written out of the history as needed by uh, our good old friend Koba. Hey, Koba. Mr. Koba is always active on his workings. So, and as we have arrived to the work created by Lenin himself at this point, it would be good to actually, you know, if someone could read this uh, Can the Bolsheviks Retain State Power and talk about this with you. Well, that's why I'm here. <clears throat> and uh, here's some excerpts uh, from, from all of this, because uh, when I think about all of this situation here, this is, this is what Lenin really meant with this new revolution, with this new apparatus, which he wanted to control for himself, but approved of a violent means of taking over. <clears throat> and I'll quote him link here. Quote, The chief difficulty facing the proletarian revolution is the establishment on a countrywide scale of the most precise and most conscientious accounting and control of workers' control of the production and distribution of goods. When the writers of Novaya Zhizny argued that in advancing the slogan workers' control we were slipping into syndicalism, this argument was an example of the stupid schoolboy method of applying Marxism without studying it, just learning it by root in the Struve manner. Syndicalism either repudiates the revolutionary dictatorship of the proletariat or else relegates it, as it does political power in general, to a back seat. We, however, put, in, put it in the forefront. 
If we simply say Nunison with the Novaya Zhizny writers, not workers' control, but state control, it is simply a bourgeoisie reformist phrase. It is, in essence, a purely cadet formula, because the cadets, uh, cadets in this sense being the people who supported this new government, because cadets have no objection to the workers participating in state, so-called state control. The cadets know perfectly well that such participation offers the bourgeoisie the best way of fooling the workers, the most subtle way of politically bribing all the Gvoznois, Nikitins, Prokovchevskis, and all the rest of the gang. When we say workers' control, always juxtaposing this slogan to, dicta to dictatorship of the proletariat, always putting it immediately after the latter, we thereby explain what kind of state we mean. The state is the organ of class domination. Of which class? If of the bourgeoisie, then this is the cadet Kornilov-Kerensky state, which has been running now, which has been Kornilovizing and Kerenskyizing the working people of Russia for more than six months. If it is of the proletariat, if we are speaking of a proletariat state, that is, of the proletarian dictatorship, then workers' control can become the countrywide, all-embracing, omnipresent, most precise, and most conscientious accounting of the production and distribution of goods. This, then, is the chief difficulty, the chief task that faces the proletarian, also known as socialist revolution. Without the Soviets, this task would be impractical, impractical to the very, to the very core tenets of this, at least in Russia. The Soviets indicate to the proletariat that the organizational work which can solve this historically important problem. This brings us to another aspect of the question of state apparatus. In addition to the chiefly oppressive apparatus, the standing army, the police and bureaucracy, the modern state possesses an apparatus which has extremely close connections with the banks and syndicates, an apparatus which performs an enormous amount of accounting and registration work, if it may be expressed this way. This apparatus must not and should not be smashed. It must be wrested from the control of the capitalists. The capitalists and the wires they pull must be cut off, lopped off, chopped away. This apparatus must be subordinated to the proletariat Soviets. It must be expanded, made more comprehensive and nationwide. And this can be done by utilizing the achievements already made by large-scale capitalism in the same way as the proletarian revolution can, in general, reach its goal only by utilizing these achievements. The big banks are the state apparatus, which we need to bring about socialism, and which we take ready-made from capitalism. Our task here is merely to lop off what capitalistically mutilates this excellent apparatus, to make it even bigger, even more democratic, even more comprehensive. Quantity will be transformed into quality. A single bank, the biggest of the big, with branches in every rural district and every factory, will constitute as much as nine-tenths of the socialist apparatus. This will be countrywide bookkeeping, countrywide accounting of the production and distribution of goods. This will be, so to speak, something in the nature of the skeleton of the socialist society. <clears throat> and uh, further on in the text. Compulsory syndication just so you can understand what he means when he says syndication. That is, compulsory amalgamation in the associations under state control, this is what capitalism has prepared the way for. This is what has been carried out in Germany by the Juncker state, this is what can be easily carried out in Russia by the Soviets, by the proletariat dictatorship. And this is what will provide us with a state apparatus that will be universal, up-to-date, and non-bureaucratic. 
So, uh, and yeah, I'm, I'm moving away from the timeline, I'm sorry here, but uh, in this here text we can clearly see that Lenin wants to usurp uh, the state apparatus from the existing system, he just wants to take all the existing state apparatus, then he wants to expand the bureaucracy, at the same time thinking that this will make the whole state apparatus completely up-to-date and non-bureaucratic, which is great, and when he speaks about corp compulsory syndication, that just means nationalization and taking away of people's property. You see, by this time, well, Lenin has arrived there, Lenin has already written uh, written his main work as the State and Revolution, and he's very active in, in this work, and uh, this article just just introduces new ideas, basically puts his work his work about state revolution into into practice, so to speak. And you see in this previous work, State of Revolution, Lenin had written some some very extreme statements there. This is where this is where the true meaning of Lenin's whole being comes into existence. You see, previously Lenin had um, only mocked democracy and democratical institutions as such. Previously, he had mocked all the state apparatus, which he now sees as necessary for his control, but it must be transformed, it must be taken and created into a socialist apparatus. That is to say that, uh, according to Lenin's theory, Lenin's agreements with Marxism, means that, you know, this is why this proletariat revolution can only happen in these very sophisticated countries, the countries with uh, this apparatus already in place. Because without without this apparatus instituted previously by bourgeoisie revolutions by the capitalistic system, no socialist revolution is possible and socialists would not be able to take power. That is to say that, yes, Lenin, uh, Lenin thought that communist revolutions are only possible in capitalistic countries, because uh, the socialist revolution is just the natural end step of all of this. And furthermore, Lenin also has noted in his previous works that any socialist regime will not be able to hold itself uh, in power for a prolonged periods of time if they will not continue using the violent means of holding the reins of power used by the previous government. That is why, and as we can hear here in this quote from, from this can communist cult power, that is why over here he also carries on his statement that all the all the forces all the forces that we have must be put forward so that we could acquire this proletariat dictatorship mere democracy is not enough because democracy is a lie wherein all the people in the media and the banks and you know everyone else who are just so skilled at this the politicians will just fool the common people and workers will gain nothing from it yeah and uh, Technically, if you think about this a bit, then it kind of does make sense, but Lenin completely forgets the fact that um, in normal countries there are constitutions in place and the very basic rights in place to protect people from such an abuse. Not so in his ideal communist government. At the beginning, as Lenin writes, at the beginning of the Socialist Revolution, the government must unanimously be based on the principles of class warfare. Everyone who had been previously in the middle class or the upper class must be must have their citizenship revoked, if not a complete elimination of these classes must be ordered, which 
Don't worry about it. We'll get to it. Complete elimination shall follow soon. So, while he's proudly quoting Marx and Engels, Lenin, in his works, is trying to show people that uh, Marx and Engels have determined certain, you know, certain stages of, of the world political development. And uh, by realizing all of these stages and following his very practical advice on, you know, you shoot the kulak, take his cow, worker is happy. Uh, by this, then, um, quote, an ideal society shall be constructed in the world, known with the, known by the description of communism. And according to Lenin, by the way, these, these uh, states of, uh, st these states of being of a government, uh, which will then lately evolve to communism, which shall be achieved by total tyranny, abolishment of democracy, because democracy is only there to fool the workers, and uh, nothing really works. Uh, the these states of being look like this. <clears throat> Firstly, with a violent revolution, the capitalism shall be destroyed and the proletariat dictatorship shall be established. This dictatorship in the beginning will be completely, completely violent and mean and evil, but and it but it will be you know they will they will through this extreme violence and he's talking about extreme violence here they will establish institutions uh, that will further the causes of practical socialism and that's just amazing now slowly within this extreme violent system which oppresses every counter revolutionary element whatsoever uh, slowly there will no longer be any need of uh, class discrimination because you know everyone who opposes us will be dead because uh, the remains of the earlier middle and upper classes will not will be so weak they won't be able to harm anyone. This is a bit of genocide that he's talking of. It's like you know we will just commit the mass murder at the beginning, but you know it'll get better because we will have killed everyone who opposes us. That seems nice. So when the socialism in this system will become more mature, then. It will create massive progress, and thus it will rush forward and uh, and create a gap between itself and capitalism, as its growth will be immensely larger than any capitalistic society. The lower classes of this uh, system shall be, by this point, used to running the government. And uh, this economy, which shall be then freed from the yoke of capitalism, uh, shall be shall be rising up, in extreme speeds, and especially, especially in the areas which capitalists neglect, that is, in the areas which uh, treat to the true needs of the people. Because Lenin fir firmly thought that the capitalism society always works for profit and not for the needs of the people. Which, you know, if you know some economy begs the question of, but wait, to whom then the capitalists sell their produce? But whatever. <clears throat> It's Lenin that we're quoting here, and uh, I'm trying to make as much sense as humanly possible. But, at the same time, carrying on, in the socialism, there is still uh, a certain political and social inequality, and only because of this, there is still need for a state. Lenin focused, uh, fo focused the attention on the fact that, that the very existence of the state itself is basically uh, oppression to benefit the uh, to benefit the kind of the ruling classes so if previously everyone had oppressed the workers right now the workers shall oppress everyone and they'll oppress everyone 
in perpetuity until one point there will be left no one but workers. So, yeah, that's about it. That's, that's his idea of socialism. The socialism in Lenin's views is just the state of, of existence where workers oppress everyone and shoot every non-worker on sight and take whatever they want from them. Weirdly enough, on my um, Marxist history page, where I take my timeline from, this uh, is obviously not quoted. Now, I have to give credit where credit is due, as Lenin also focused on this, the, the higher goals because of, of, of all of this mass violence and robbery and uh, all these nasty things which he's about to do, is, are just there so that the, they, they could eventually create a society without exploitation and without oppression. That would be, then, the final state of the, hist of the natural historical law and the historical progression of, so of political societies. So, quote, Only in this final state of communism, finally, there will, be, uh, there will be the principle actually realized. From everyone according to its abilities and to everyone according to their own needs. There will be no differences in the material, material rewards. This brings me to this question that yeah, and this is this is quoting Lenin here. See, if you if you read Lenin, you can um, spot that he disagrees with himself every five minutes or so. But how can we give to everyone's needs and at the same time give everyone the exact same amount? This can only happen in a society where everyone's needs are exactly the same. And uh, like I always like to mention. Uh, I don't know, video games and, and wargaming and miniatures and all, all different hobbies which are not already there are impossible to build in a communist society because, hey, then someone wants to buy uh, this game from the store, but other people don't play video games. So how can we make sure this one person gets his need at this, while we're giving the exact same resources to everyone? Yeah. I'm sorry about this a bit of Lenin's philosophy, but hey, when I'm reading Marxist sites for my timeline, which I find extremely important, I will get to quoting such things uh, quite a bit. Now, in the same work, uh, can, can communists really take power? Lenin also understands that at the beginning, any such proletarian dictatorship will just plunge into even more chaos, even more terrible situations. And he writes there also, quote, we are not utopia. We are not utopians. We know that you know a, rand a random hard-working man or a random kitchen worker are not able to right now step into the government, uh, step into the process of governing a state. With that, we are we are in agreement together with cadets and Brzezowski and other people. But we we differentiate ourselves from these citizens with the fact that we immediately demand that this uh, situation shall be fixed. We demand everyone to get the, the, the education necessary so that they would be able to run the government immediately. That this education would be that this education would be started right now and that all the working people and all the poor people would be forced to attend it. Now that's that's a quite an interesting interesting point of here because uh, his wife Nadezhda Krupskaya really did spend a lot of time educating poor people, and she increased literacy rates of Russia by establishing a lot of schools. And that was um, that was one of the really great things done done by the women in, under communism and by Soviet women in general. 
By the way, in the 8th of March, in the International Women's Day, we shall have an episode dedicated to uh, Soviet women. Uh, continuing on with the timeline. On October the 18th, the Bolsheviks, Komnyayev and Zinoviev, they announced the Bolshevik plan for revolution in a Menshevik newspaper. Because they're obviously the Mensheviks now, as they, they are more willing to work with the established political situation and want to wage political warfare, not a coup like Lenin and like Trotsky has planned out. And Lenin has just, you know, taken over this idea from Trotsky, pushed him aside a bit and said, hey, I'm, I'm here, I'm running the show now. So uh, Lenin, after this, obviously demands that both would be expelled from the party despite the fact that he had quite quite close relations with them. Kamnyev and Zinoviev, they of course defend their position before the party. They're, they're explaining there that they are simply expressing a difference of opinion. <laughs> Lenin publicly responds that public dissent is certainly acceptable, but not after a decision of such a serious nature and magnitude, similar to that of a strike, is democratically made by the party. Now, they were expelled, obviously, both Kamnyev and Zinoviev, but they were kind of soon forgiven for a while. Now, Stalin, when he'll later rewrite the whole history of these events and what happened there in his own uh, major role, as you've noticed, we haven't mentioned um, Mr. Kobab or Stalin a while here. But when Stalin shall rewrite these events according to his own political needs, generally expressing everything only the way he wants, and he'll decide that these guys should be treated um, sort of like differently. On October the 19th, Kerensky demands that the General Secretary of Ukraine to immediately would come to Petrograd. Most likely, he wanted to arrest this Secretary of Ukraine. Because by this point, the Soviet, the whole Russian Empire is slowly starting to fall apart at the seams. Over here in Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, we have our independence movements, which also apparently should warn their own show, but we'll get to that. And Ukraine is about the same way. They're like, hey, we are, uh, of course, general secretaries of Ukraine, and we're still communists, but uh, we would like to go our own way, thank you, because we are Ukrainians and not Russians, and, you know, independence, maybe, you know, just thinking about it. But yeah, this district attorney, at the same time, is, uh, meanwhile, ordered to investigate the Rada, which is the Ukrainian government at this point, because they're splitting away, and they're, they have their own government, they, their own autonomy and everything. And the district attorney by Kerensky then, who is now representing this stale-at-the-power temporary government, they're ordering him to investigate rather for criminal activity. Quote, end quote. Meanwhile, at the same time, Kerensky also threatens the arrest of the elected officers of the Baltic fleet if they continue to refuse to deliver freight. Because by this point, the, the, the Baltic fleet as elected its own officer, of officers, just as everywhere else in the Red Army. Well, by this point, it's not Red Army, it's uh, the Russian Army. But it'll soon, you know, turn over and uh, some parts of the army have become very red with the elected, elected officers. So, the regional committee, to respond to all of this situation, because the regional committee is the local party officials, they threaten Kerensky, you know, do it. They literally say, Kerensky, hey, if you want to arrest officers because they're not doing what you're telling them, because we ordered them to not obey you, just, you know, do it. It's amazing. Meanwhile, apparently, all the Russian, con the all-Russian conference of factory and shop committees, which is a communist-run thing, which is there just, to, you know, people who run all the, all the worker shops and, and factories, 
completely run by communists, <clears throat> uh, proclaim and uh, resolve and make an official statement stating that they support all power to the Soviets. They don't represent the majority of workers, of course, whatsoever. On October the 20th, the recently appointed Minister of War, Verkhovsky, makes, makes an appearance, kind of unprepared appearance, random appearance, before this pre-parliament, which is trying to work there, they're trying to decide what's going on with the country, and they're being actively sabotaged by the communists. So this minister of war demands that Russia immediately make peace or face complete catastrophe. Verkhovsky is completely laughed out of the building. Verkhovsky at this point thought that, you know, if Russia doesn't make peace, terrible things will happen. Well, guess what? Terrible things did actually happen. In October the 23rd, for several weeks already by this point, the Bolsheviks have been carrying on extensive campaigns of, agita of agitation throughout the country. Even though they are not very supported in these previous weeks by Lenin, who's just there pronouncing his pamphlets and working within the party itself, Trotsky and Svetlov work tirelessly. The most important part of all this agitation, however, are, are not these pamphlets written by Lenin, who's just there policing around and trying to be the big boss of communists, or, or Trotsky, or, or Svetlov, or all these people who just, you know, try to or organize things politically through these workers' unions and trade unions that we spoke last time. It's the common workers that actually, you know, the common communist everyday line, communist members of the party who are the workers, they try to convince everyone, and they become they become agitated by Trotsky, and so they really, really, really try to influence the rest of the country and everyone else, basically, who's not already an active communist, that the time has come to seize power in, you know, our own hands. So, the Soviets, and the October 23rd issue, Revolutionary Decree Number 1. Hi, this is Alice. Thank you for all of those who are supporting us on PayPal or Patreon. Your donations help us greatly. And we also would like to thank our patrons, and we will be releasing our next book reading this month. We would like to announce that the next episode will be commemorating International Women's Day with the wonderful Matilda Clara Testoni in a special episode about the achievements of Soviet women. Do you know Valentina Tereshkova was the first woman in space? I bet you didn't. So tune in next time. And thank you for listening. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. And uh, on this revolutionary decree number one, here's Trotsky on this, because uh, he written he has written himself this uh, history of the Russian Revolution, 
And in chapter 46, the October Insurrection, and he calls it the October Insurrection, not the October Revolution, he writes about all these events in this decree, and uh, yeah, as I mentioned, decree... <clears throat> Uh, he writes, During those days when Petrograd was full of the transfer of the garnison, Moscow was living in an atmosphere of continual strike conflicts. On the initiative of, factory, of a factory committee, the Bolshevik, action, uh, the Bolshevik faction of the Soviet put forward a plan to settle economic conflicts by means of decrees. This is where this revolutionary decree number one comes in. The preparatory steps took a good deal of time. Only the 23rd of October was revolutionary decree number one adopted by the Soviet bodies. It provided that workers and clerks in factories and shops shall henceforth be employed and discharged only with the consent of shop committees. This meant that the Soviet had begun to function as a state power. The inevitable resistance of the government would, according to the design of the initiators, unite the masses more closely round the Soviet and lead to an open conflict. This idea never came to the test because the revolution in Petrograd gave Moscow, together with all the rest of the country, a far more imperative motive for insurrection the necessity of coming promptly to the support of the newly formed society government. End quote. At the very same time, in this 23rd of October, the Bolshevik Central Com Committee voted 10 to 2 for resolution, according with this first decree, which basically decided that hiring and firing of workers in all these shops would now run by the Soviets, stating that <clears throat> an armed uprising is inevitable. And the time for it is fully ripe. The Bolsheviks had created a military committee within the Petrograd Soviet. That was led by this Petrograd Soviet president, Trotsky himself, because Trotsky is deeply involved in all this situation, even though he'll later end up murdered in Argentina. So, this committee included armed workers, sailors, and of course soldiers, a lot of them, and they assured the support or neutrality of the capital's garrison. Like, you know, if something would happen in Petrograd, we will uh, support you, or at least remain neutral. It's gonna be, gonna be pretty good. So this is the point in time where everything really comes up to a bit of a standstill. And uh, can't really do any more actions. Uh, like, right now, everything is just ripe for all of this. At the very same time, the provisional government who are still trying to make some decisions and trying to control of this situation. The provisional government acts so that to shut down all Bolshevik newspapers. At this point where the decree is being declared, and when the communists vote that, okay, by this point this, this whole dual government everything has to go down, the provisional government decides in a hurry that, yeah, uh, let, us, let us not allow any Bolshevik newspapers around, because, you know, they've been clearly clearly calling for mass violence and what they're doing is is quite quite terrible but at the same time all these bolshevik newspapers which are mostly underground by the point but still they had already changed the names and moved to other offices in july preparing for this so now there is no, there is like, uh, they have changed names because of what was earlier Pravda, like now is Lislok Pravda. Technically, the beginning of the revolution is October the 25th. That's the celebrated date of October insurrection, let's be more precise. It's the 7th of November, that's why it's uh, celebrated as the October Revolution, but celebrated on the 7th of November in modern-day uh, modern Russia, and was celebrated in the Soviet Union. 
this is where it happens on the night from the 24th to the 25th of November. And this happens because uh, they, they have decided on the 23rd that uh, the, the, the conflict is inevitable and they're really, really preparing for this. And the Bolshevik newspapers are banned. So on the October 24th, the provisional government decides that, hey, just prohibiting the newspapers didn't do enough, and they tried to seize the active presses of the Bolshevik newspapers. And in response, the October, the October Revolution truly, truly begins. Because the communists decide that, hey, they're trying to seize our newspapers, and this is this is how it happens because by nightfall Trotsky has led his Red Guards, which he had been commanding through his Soviet and Soviet workers all around, to control all the bridges that cross Neva. And key positions throughout the whole Petrograd, whole St. Petersburg, including all the roads into the city. Lenin arrives there at the Smolny, and he takes command of the Red Guards and Workers Soviets. There are some some accounts from uh, from this revolution which I'd like to like to state here because th there are quite a lot of them uh, quite a lot of them were, were kind of there and uh, this is what Leon Leon Trotsky writes about writes about all of this. Demonstrations, street fights, barricades, everything comprised in the usual idea of insurrection were almost entirely absent. The revolution had no need of solving a problem already solved. The seizure, the seizure of the governmental machine could be carried through according to plan with the help of comparatively small armed detachments guided from a single center. The barracks, the fortress, the storehouses, all those enterprises in which workers and soldiers functioned could be taken possession of by their own internal forces. But the Winter Palace, the pre-parliament, the district headquarters, the ministries, the military schools could not be captured from within. This was true also of the telephone, the telegraph, the post office and the state bank. The workers of these institutions, although of little weight in the general combination of forces, nevertheless ruled within their four walls, and these were, moreover, strongly guarded with sentries. It was necessary to penetrate these bureaucratic hide points from without. The local conquest was here replaced by forcible seizure. But since the preceding crowding out of the government from its military bases had made resistance almost impossible, this military seizure of the final commanding heights passed off as a general rule without conflicts. To be sure, the Winter Palace had to be taken by storm, but the very fact that the resistance of the government came down to a defense of the Winter Palace clearly defines the place occupied by the October 25th in the whole course of the struggle. The Winter Palace was the last redoubt of the regime politically shattered during its eight months' existence, and conclusively disarmed during the preceding two weeks. The tranquility of the October streets, the absence of crowds and battles, gave the enemy a pretext to talk of the conspiracy of an insignificant minority of the adventure of a handful of Bolsheviks. This formula was repeated a number of times in days, months, and even years following the insurrection. It's obviously with a view to, to mending the reputation of the, of the proletarian revolution that Yaroslavsky writes of the 25th of October. Thick masses of the Petrograd proletariat, summoned by the military revolutionary committee, stood under its banners and overflowed the streets of Petrograd. This official historian only forgets to explain for what purpose the military revolutionary committee had summoned these masses to the streets, and just what they did when they got there. From the combination of its strong and weak points has grown up an official idealization of the February Revolution as an all-national revolution in contrast to the October one, which is held to be a conspiracy. 
But in reality, the Bolsheviks could reduce the struggle of power at the last moment to a conspiracy, not because they were a small minority, but for the opposite reason. Because they had behind them in the workers' districts and barracks an overwhelming majority, consolidated, organized, disciplined. End quote. Now, no matter what Trotsky says, if you just look at the pure numbers and the pure statistics of how many workers were there and how many people actually were in these Soviets and what was going on, and the chaotic government that was running the country at the time when this coup happened, you can clearly see that, uh, no, it wasn't a massive populist uprising, like Trotsky would like to paint it. It was instead a very agitated, very organized group, very, very strongly influenced by their leaders and very idealistic, who, yes, had managed to infiltrate the lead offices of the governments in their respective cities, because remember this, the central pre-government cannot control the whole ter territory and everything. So they didn't need large numbers. And even though Trotsky here states that Oh, you know, this was just a small click of bit of, this was just a small click, but we were supported by the backing of all these people. No, no, they weren't. The majority of people really are just in chaos and confusion, and they don't know what had happened to them. They, they're just there because uh, they were just using the moment where nothing really happened. They were just using this this moment of of everything, where where basically they could seize this power. See. If the central government would be organized, then even the majority of the people wouldn't have helped them, as we clearly saw in the 1905 revolution, which was massive, yet was oppressed. But this infiltration, these small Soviets and these fanatical Bolsheviks riled up by their leaders, this really enabled them to take over the power. Then again, again this might be a bit controversial, but really, the statistically... Statistically, it shows that only 5% of all the, all the people living in Petrograd and St. Petersburg actually participated in this coup. Like, we can't talk about the majority power. We really do have to speak about, uh, about all, of, all of the strategic points being taken over by a very tiny minority there. And this backing from the masses, as Trotsky, as Trotsky talks about these, these events, it's basically non-existent. By the way, Kerensky himself, the leader of this provisional government, he manages to run away from the Winter Palace and escape, which will become very important later. Now, the timeline goes uh, as follows, because in the, the 10 a.m., basically, Lenin declares uh, that the, the victory has been achieved, written by Lenin, to the citizens of Russia. <clears throat> The provisional government has been deposed. State power has passed into the hands of the organ of the Petrograd Soviet of Workers and Soldiers Deputies, the Revolutionary Military Committee, which heads the Petrograd proletariat and the garnison. The cause for which the people have fought, namely the immediate offer of a democratic peace, the abolition of landed proprietorship, workers' control over production and the establishment of the Soviet power, this cause has been secured. Long live the revolution of workers, soldiers and peasants. Signed, Revolutionary Military Committee of the Petrograd Soviet of Workers and Soldiers Deputies. All this written by Lenin, of course. <clears throat> 10 a.m., October 25th, 1917. Now, by this point, they still haven't captured the Winter Palace. 
that will happen a bit later because they they are just capturing around the old state like they have they captured state bank in the 10 a.m in the morning they, they have captured every office there because there are infiltrators there and there, there have been a massive agitated war going on and just the petrograd soviet is what been running the this is the part of the dual power and they they have just taken over things without much resistance now this happens in petrograd in moscow revolutionary forces however encounter a very stiff opposition from uh, colonel ryabtsev the battles are, are quite fierce there and there are casualties on both sides but uh remember mr ryabtsev he, he will he'll come up a bit later and the uh, 20 at uh, then at 10:40 p.m october 25th which is november 7th uh the second all-russian congress of the soviets opens in the smolny and the mensheviks and the Essers, the, the social republican force, the socially democratic guys, they just walk out of it. Now, Kerensky has escaped, Kerensky has fled to the north in order to start a counter-revolutionary rebellion, which will lead to a civil war. To think about all of this situation, what happens there, there's this second All-Russian Congress of the Soviets. And when you look back at this from today, of the 26 members who were in this Bolshevik Central Committee at the time of the revolution, 12 would be later executed in the purges by Stalin. The Winter Palace itself is uh, taken over at 2 a.m. October 26th, thus bringing final victory for the revolution in Petrograd, without almost a single life lost by either side. There, there's no one lost, there, there, there are some people wounded, it's a minor firefight, but nothing really happens. Like, there's a small firefight, some people are wounded, no one dies. And everyone just gets arrested. The Congress of Soviets resolves at 3 a.m. And they write another proclamation written by Lenin, which is called The Workers soldiers and peasants the first one was to citizens of russia <clears throat> the second all russia congress of soviets of workers and soldiers deputies has opened the vast majority of the soviets have represented the congress which is 26 a number of delegates from the peasants soviets are also present the mandate of the compromising central executive committee has terminated backed off by the will of the vast majority of the workers, soldiers and peasants, backed by the victorious uprising of the workers and the garrison, which has taken place in Petrograd, the Congress takes power into its own hands. The provisional government has been overthrown. The majority of the members of the provisional government have already been arrested and will be soon eliminated. <clears throat> the Soviet government will propose an immediate democratic peace to all the nations and an immediate armistice on all fronts. It will secure the transfer of the land of the landed proprietors, the crown and the monasteries to the peasant committees without compensation. Here, we're starting already, obviously, because this is the phrase that Lenin has been talking about. Establishment of a total, immediate tyranny, dictatorship of the proletariat with nationalization, mass murder, everything. Rejoice, common people. It will protect the rights of the soldiers by introducing complete democracy in the army. Yeah, this is the point where they really tried to make sure that the, you know, the, the complete democracy in the army never really worked out in the later stages for very obvious reasons. But yeah, 
think about Stalin and his generals and think about this proclamation. Kind of nice. It will establish workers' control over production. It will ensure the convocation of the constituent assembly at the time appointed. It will see to it that bread is supplied to cities and prime necessities to the villages. It will guarantee all the nations inhabiting Russia the genuine right to self-determination. Which also never happened, but this proclamation was one of the reasons why our country is independent. Because, you know what? Uh, self-determination for all the nations inhabiting Russia? Hey, yay, great, great. Let's, let's work on it. We're not Russians, after all. We might get our own country. And again, this is for another episode. <clears throat> the Congress decrees all powers in the localities shall pass to the Soviets of workers, soldiers, and peasants' deputies, which most must guarantee genuine revolutionary order. The Congress calls upon the soldiers in the trenches to be vigilant and firm. The Congress of Soviets is convinced that the revolutionary army will be able to defend the revolution against all attack of imperialism until such time as the new government succeeds in concluding democratic peace, which it will propose directly to all peoples. The new government will do everything to fully supply the revolutionary army, be means of a determined policy of requisitions and taxation of the proprietor classes, and also will improve the condition of the soldiers' families. That is like, yeah, okay, guys, we will give you supplies. We'll just uh, take it from um, everyone and then give it to you. The Kornilov men, Kerensky, Kaledin, and others. And Kerensky has just literally this day escaped. Earlier today has escaped to the, to the northern parts to get this. <clears throat> others are attempting to bring troops against Petrograd. Several detachments whom Kerensky had moved by deceiving them have come on over to the side of the insurgent people. Soldiers actively resist Kerensky the Kornilovite. Be in your guard. Railwaymen hold up all troop trains dispatched by Kerensky against Petrograd. Soldiers, workers, and factory and office, the fate of the revolution and the fate of the democratic peace is in your hands. Long live the revolution. This is their um, huge official proclamation of, hey, well, thou, it was finally over at 10 in the morning, but now it's like really, really, really finally over. And of course... Um, of course, even though all, all this all this happens, in the very next day after this revolution, the press starts to get massively censored by the communists. All this was extremely, extremely weird because later, when Stalin comes into power, he again, and I've mentioned this before, he revised all this Soviet history and he, you know, cleansed it a bit and left left in what was really, you know, good for his politics and propaganda. And, you know, the, the taking of the Winter Palace, which is really something that, you know, people took over, small firefight, nothing really happens, people get arrested. Yeah, that was turned over and um, became in the propaganda materials as, you know, a massive, bloody event, and documentaries were seen, you know, recreated according to true events, with, like, these global bloody scenes, and it was made, like, this huge event, because, uh, because uh, our good old friend Koba was there, and it must be great. A lot of movies were, were, were lately filmed because of this, and they were extremely exaggerated, because, you know, this small coup where people infiltrated, infiltrated things and it happened peacefully, it's kind of, you know, uh, boring. It's not really, like, French Revolution with people running to the barricades. It's like, it's a coup. It's a coup, and and it starts there, and and it, it nothing, and it kind of you know swiftly happens, and it's not bloody, and it's not massive, and it's not even that popular. Yeah, it does look bad on the Soviet propaganda now, doesn't it? <laughs> now, uh, of course, uh, also further uh, in this October twenty sixth, uh, there are there are like few decrees also also published besides all of this 
the second thing is that the, the decree of peace is is sent out everywhere, which is essentially the attempt of Lenin to ensure that you know there is actually peace and that the Soviet Union will leave the First World War in First World War immediately. Another very important uh, thing that happens in the, so the Soviets after the decree of peace, which is the, the first one, this second All-Russia Congress delegates, is the report on land. And again, it's, it's not a very long thing, so uh, this is basically their, their decree on, on land. <clears throat> one, landed proprietorship is abolished forthwith without any compensation. Two, the landed estates, also all crown, monastery, and church lands with all their livestock, implements, buildings, and everything pertaining thereto shall be placed at the disposal of the Volost land committees and the Uyezd Soviets of peasants' deputies pending the convocation of the constituent assembly. 3. All damage to confiscated property, which henceforth belongs to the whole people, is proclaimed a grave crime to be punished by the revolutionary courts. The Uyezd Soviets of Peasants' Deputies shall take all necessary measures to assure the observance of the strictest order during the confiscation of the landed estates, to determine the size of estates and the particular estates subject to confiscation, to draw up exact inventories of all pro property confiscated, and to protect, in the strictest revolutionary way, all agricultural enterprises transferred to the people the people here being the Bolsheviks, that is, <clears throat> with all buildings, implements, livestock, stocks of produce, XTC. 4. The following peasant mandate, compiled, compiled by the newspaper Izvestia Vsevorossiskov Sovieta Krestyanich Deputatov from 242 local peasant mandates and published in number, 80, in number 88 of that paper, Petrograd number 88, August 19, 1917, shall serve everywhere to, the, to guide the implementation of the great land reforms until a final decision of the, on the latter is taken by Constituent Assembly. So, first thing the Soviets do after taking power, and uh, again, what they did was they took machine guns and rifles and threw out the democratically elected government, which was there to basically establish a constitutional government, deciding what to do, and was represented by the people, were running the country, like, chaotically, but they were trying their best, and they would have most likely established something like American Constitution, and hey... If uh, the Bolshevik Revolution hadn't happened, you, 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 an American, the Western world would have probably a great democratic ally right over there. Well, now that didn't happen. Instead, they drop out of the war and declare that you know we will confiscate everything from everyone and shoot those who don't agree with us. Oh yeah, this peasant mandate uh, on land. It's also not not as long. I'm, I think I'm going to read it in full here as well. <clears throat> peasant mandate on the land. The land question in its full scope can be settled only by the popular constituent assembly. The most equitable settlement of the land question is to be as follows. 1. Private ownership of land shall be abol abolished forever. Land shall not be sold, purchased, legalized, mortgaged, or otherwise alienated. All land, whether state, crown, monastery, church, factory, entailed, private, public, peasant, XTC, shall be confiscated without, confiscation, without compensation and become the property of the whole people, and pass it pass into the use of all those who cultivate it. Persons who suffer by this proper property revolution shall be deemed to be entitled to public support only for the period necessary for adaptation to the new conditions of life. <clears throat> Happiness is mandatory. 2. All mineral wealth, ore, oil, coal, salt, etc. And also, all forests and waters of state importance shall pass into exclusive use of the state. All the small streams, lakes, woods shall pass into the use of the communes to be administered by the local self-governing bodies. This is where the beginning of Kolhos can be found. 
3. Lands on which high-level scientific farming is practiced Orchards, tree farms, seed plots, nurseries, hothouses, XTC, shall not be divided up, but shall be converted into model farms to be turned over for exclusive use to the state or to the communes, depending on the size and importance of such lands. Household land in towns and villages, with orchards and vegetable gardens, shall be reserved for the use of their present owners, the size of the holdings and the size of tax levied for the use thereof, to be determined by law. This uh, household land is essentially, you know, you have a town and then you have your home and then you have a small garden next to your ta next to your home. It's like, you know, one day you wake up in Russia and then you go and, you know, right next to your home you have this small garden. Next day you will be shot if you don't pay taxes on that small land. Amazing. Stud farms, government and private pedigree stock and poultry farms shall be confiscated and become property of the whole people and pass into the exclusive use of the state or a commune depending on the size and importance of such farms. All livestock and farm implements of the confiscated estates shall pass into the exclusive use of the state or commune, depending on their size and importance, and no compensation shall be paid for this. The farm implements of peasants with little land shall not be subject to compensation. The confiscation. Uh, this basically means that, you know, if you own some pitchforks uh, and some instruments, they now belong to the state, unless you're a very small farm, as deemed by... Uh, as deemed by the Constituent Assembly of uh, 26 people who are now the country which have confiscated everything you own. No, it, it doesn't make much sense, and I doubt it made that, that much sense when they wrote this thing. <clears throat> 6. The right to use the land shall be accorded to all citizens of the Russian state, without distinction of sex, which is a specific, uh, which is a specific article there, which I have to mention as being quite progressive by this period. <clears throat> Desiring to cultivate it by their own labor with the help of their families or in partnership, but only as long as they are able to cultivate it. The employment of hired labor is not permitted. Yeah, you can't hire any farmhands to help you out. Whatsoever. In the event of the temporary physical disability of any member of a village commune, for a period up to two years, the village commune shall be obliged to assist him for this period by collectively cultivating his land until he is again able to work. Peasants who, owing to old age or ill health, are permanently disabled and unable to cultivate the land personally, shall rule, shall lose their right to be to the use of it, but in return shall receive a pension from the state. Those twenty-six people again. Land tenure shall be on an equal equality basis, i.e., the land shall be distributed among the working people in conformity with the labor standard of a subsistence standard, depending on local conditions. There shall be absolutely no restriction on the forms of land tenure, household, farm, communal or cooperative, as shall be decided in each individual village and settlement. This point number seven shall be abolished soon after, because kolkhoz are the way to go, as the people really didn't want to work for the government. Because, you know, most people are just, wait, what, I, I, I live in Vladivostok and this is my farm and wait a minute, I remember this Lenin kid, I took his cow, oh boy. And now you lost your now you lost your cow there, sir. Now you lost your cow. So <clears throat> all land when alienated shall become part of the National Land Fund. Its distribution among the peasants shall be in charge of the local and central self-government bodies, from the democratically organized village and city communes, in which there are no distinctions of social rank, the central regional governmental bodies. The land fund shall be subject to periodical redistribution, depending on the growth of population and the increase in the productivity and the scientific level of farming. 
That is, you get your small plot of land where which you can now legally work, but if you become too productive there and your neighbor is lazy and doesn't work there, then you know we will, you know, you have an acre, he has an acre, you produce, you produce twice as much grain than he does, therefore you know he gets half of your land so that you equal out. It's great. Yeah, this is, this is, this is how uh, reforms really bring up innovation, people. So yeah. This is what they do in day one. This is day one. <clears throat> oh, and the, th this continues because there's this third decree, which isn't as optimistic and nice as the previous amazing decrees, but the, this is the <clears throat> decree on suppression of hostile newspapers. <clears throat> Quote, in the serious decisive hour of the revolution and the day immediately following it, the Provisional Revolutionary Committee was compelled to adapt a whole series of measures against the counter-revolutionary press of all shades. Immediately on all sides, cries arose that a new socialist authority was violating, in this way, the essential principles of its program by an attempt against the freedom of the press. The workers and soldiers' government draws the attention of the population to the fact that in our country, behind this liberal shield, there is practically hidden the liberty for the richer classes to seize into their hand the lion's share of the whole press, and by this means to poison the minds and bring confusion into the consciousness of the masses. Everyone knows that the bourgeoisie press is one of the most powerful weapons of the bourgeoisie, especially in this critical moment when the new authority, that of the workers and peasants, is in process of consolidation. It was impossible to leave this weapon in the hands of the enemy at a time when it is not less dangerous than bombs and machine guns. This is why temporary and extraordinary measures, they will become permanent soon on, have been adopted for the purpose of cutting off at the stream of mire and calumny in which the yellow and green press would glad to drown the young victory of the people. As soon as the new order will be consolidated, all administrative measures against the press will be suspended. Full liberty will be given it, give, given it within the limits of responsibility before the law. And a accordance with the broadest and most progressive regulations in this respect. Bearing in mind, however, the fact that any restrictions on the freedom of press, even in critical moments, are admissible only within the bound of necessity, the Council of People's Commissaries decrees as follows. General rules on the press. 1. The following organs of the press shall be subject to be closed. a. Those inciting to open resistance or disobedience towards the workers and peasants' government. b. Those sowing confusion by means of an obviously calumn calumniatory perversion of facts. c. Those inciting to acts of a criminal character punishable by the penal laws. 2. The temporary or permanent closing of any organ of the press shall be carried out only by a resolution of the Council of People's Commissaries. 3. The present decree is of a temporary nature and, be, and will be revoked by a special ukas when the normal conditions of public life will be reestablished. Chairman of the People's Commissars, Vladimir Ulyanov, Lenin. So yeah, the first thing the the, the communists did when they they seized power is like uh, take everyone's land, everyone's resources away, and cancel the press. Declare the press to be the enemy of the people, the tools of the rich, uh, rich uh, to to oppress the poor. And of course, the pro the poor are equally oppressed because it doesn't matter. Everyone loses all of their land without compensation. I uh, sometimes hate my own cheerfulness when reading terrible, terrible, terrible documents of massive oppression of the people. Which is a bit sad, but uh, this is how it happens. This is how I can, can get over all of this situation. And later on, about all this situation, about all of these events, and uh, after this, the Civil War starts, and, and this is the climax of the whole revolution. We will end with the facts here, but... Um, Later on, Lenin will write about all of this, and he'll write on the 30th of November, 1917. 
it's much more it's much more satisfying and useful to do the experience of the revolution than to write about it that's from that's from Lenin's own newspapers about all this situation here and Lenin will just start to do all these things and the other decrees by the way determine and this is this is weird because you know the revolution happened and all these soviets what have they been fighting for is basically you know limitations of workers hours workers rights what trade unions fight for what what the great strike of 1877 was for which we spoke about the episode of the 1905 revolution remember that the workers support the socialists so that they would get increased rights, better working hours, minimum wage, safety regulations, that their lives, lives would improve. That is what the workers fight for. The first thing the government does is essentially uh, withdraw from the First World War without, for, without, as they wanted to do so at this point, payment of indemnities or annexations. Which sort of didn't happen, but uh, essentially when later... When later the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk will happen, this will be broken up, so they don't even manage the peace that well. And the second thing they do is they take away all land from everyone and close up all the... Take all land away from everyone and close up all the newspapers. Oh, those, those, those right things, they'll have to wait a day. The workers' rights are not as important to be declared immediately. Which uh, makes things quite interesting. And one another thing is that you know you you might think well why why would why would why would such a thing happen like if, if the workers' rights were there and this is a small minority and there aren't really that much support for all of them and you know if you have basically listened to all of this episode and start to think about wait a minute why is Lenin doing this to his people because he starts off by ordering shootings of people by taking away everyone's land and shooting those who disagree and the red terror shall begin very very soon. And, and all these terrible things will happen. Why is he doing this for his people? Well, one of the more um, known modern historians, and this is this is from um, a site called uh, Vajennaya Abazrinya, which is essentially uh, military military the military view of life. That's the that's the homepage where I'm taking this, and and they're interviewing. Uh, they are interviewing uh, the Soviet historian, uh, specifically Lenin's historian, Anatoly Latyshev. And he's been studying Lenin and everything, and uh, they ask him some questions here. And one of the questions they ask him is that, uh, well, they're speaking that Vladimir Ilyich was, like, really didn't love the Russian people. And here's what he says in response to this question. <clears throat> The Russophobia of Lenin is not very well known today. And all of this comes from his childhood. He didn't have any Russian blood in his family. His mother was German who was German with Swedish and, and Jewish blood. His father was uh, half Kalmyk, half Chuvash. Lenin was being uh, raised in the spirit of German accuracy and discipline. The mother was constantly telling him that, you know, the Russians are lame, uh, the Russian way of life is, is stupid, uh, study, study, do, do what the Germans do. And, they, uh, and she constantly, constantly in, in her writings always used, uh, used terms like Russian, Russian fool or Russian idiots. And uh, 
always in, in his in his uh, decrees and his dictations, Lenin always spoke about the Russian people only in uh, a degra- uh, only in a degradatory kind of a degradatory form. He always tried to humiliate them. Once he even ordered a fully a fully kind of fully ordered Soviet representative in Switzerland. Uh, Lenin ordered him <clears throat> give work to Russian fools. Uh, send uh, send only only specific uh, specific uh, outcuts of the articles articles uh, there to our representatives in Switzerland, but but not just you know random whole numbers of newspapers uh, like these idiots did did until this moment. End quote of Lenin about Russian people. And there's uh, and th- there's uh, there the interview continues. Uh, there are letters in which Lenin really wrote about the extermination of Russian people. And uh, Mr. Lat- and Mr. Latishev responds uh, between those terrible, le- terrible, terrible documents written by Lenin. There are especially, especially hardcore orders about you know destruction of of uh, his his co-workers and the, the Russian cities, like <clears throat> quote, burn Baku completely. Uh, take hostages of the, of the families of uh, take hostages of the families of the farmers, uh, and and in the civil war he would also like take hostages of of random farmers and like you know put them in front of you know an advancing an advancing red army uh, in the civil war so that you know the the whites the revolu- the counter revolutionary elements in the civil war would just first shoot at the peasants and leave the red army. And this is this is what happens. I don't know. Lenin definitely hated people, and I think he hated Russians more than anyone else. And this is where the civil war starts, and this is where the real, real horror of the revolution begins. But we'll get to this in a future episode because. I think I've had enough darkness for today. Thank you for listening, and we shall continue in the next episode of the Eastern Border in the Red Dawn series. Being enthusiastic and happy while I'm making these really takes a toll. До свидания, товарищ. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best-kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure.